Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.22, The War of Jenkins' Ear. The story of this podcast over the last several weeks has been one of stability. Since the end of Queen Anne's War in 1713, Great Britain has, more or less, been at peace. Not that there were never any tensions with other powers, those certainly still existed. However, in terms of an actual war, there were none. This period is critical for the colonies in North America, as it gives them a nearly 30-year period of peace, where they could expand both in terms of population and economically. A unique American culture had the space necessary to begin to form during this time. It was a period of serious maturation for our colonies. However, by the end of the 1730s, hawkish influences back in Britain would bring an end to the peace that the colonists had flourished under. In what would be a somewhat nebulous series of wars, the 1740s returned the colonists to a state of conflict. What would begin as a war against the Spanish would eventually develop into a greater conflict and would see Britain and France renew their long history of hostilities. This week, we are going to deal with the conflict with Spain before addressing the conflict with France next time. So, let's dive in. The long peace in Britain can largely be attributed to Robert Walpole. Last week, we met Walpole for the first time when we discussed his policy of salutary neglect towards the colonies. The logic behind Walpole's policy was to save money. Over-administration of the colonies was expensive for the British to enforce. Therefore, salutary neglect was the order of the day. Do you know what else is really, really expensive? War. Following the expensive endeavor that was the War of Spanish Succession, or Queen Anne's War depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on, Walpole had done everything in his power to keep the British out of war. However, as the 1730s moved along, an increasingly hawkish attitude permeated Parliament. What had emerged by the 1730s was a situation where the French had become increasingly powerful, much to the dismay of the British. The British knew that they had little realistic hope of checking French power on land, and rather turned to their strength, the navy. Rather than challenging the French directly, the British instead favored doing what they could to strengthen their own empire and thus hurt the French by proxy. The logical target of this desire to increase the empire was pointed not directly at the French, but towards their close ally, the Spanish. This therefore begs the question, what do the Spanish have to do with all of this? For years, the British had been skirting Spanish trade policies and were carrying on a large-scale illegal trade in Spanish ports. Unsurprisingly, the Spanish were both aware of this trade and not particularly amused by it. The Spanish, in response to the flouting of their laws, launched an aggressive response in the Caribbean that saw strict enforcement. To carry out this enforcement of Spanish shipping laws, they turned to the Garda Costas, a private force that helped carry out the will of the Spanish government back in Madrid, while at the same time making a tidy profit for themselves. The response of the Garda Costas included stopping and searching any ship that caused them even the least bit of suspicion. If the cargo raised any red flags, the ship would be impounded while the Spanish courts figured it out. This often resulted in the loss of both the ship and the cargo alike. Now it was Britain's turn to be outraged by what they considered to be Spanish piracy. 
The poster child for this dispute became the ship captain, Robert Jenkins. According to Jenkins, back in 1731, a Spanish patrol had stopped his ship and conducted a search. The Spanish ship, captained by Juan de Leon Fendino, took the goods from Jenkins' ship and cut his ear off. In 1738, the Warhawks inside of Parliament marched Jenkins before the assembly and had him tell his story. The crowd not only saw the stump where his ear once was, but Jenkins was kind enough to bring the rest of his ear with him, which he showed to the shocked crowd. And yes, this also means that Jenkins was carrying around his mingled severed ear for like seven years, which, gross. This was enough to push Walpole reluctantly off the fence and demand that Spain cease searching British vessels, something that the Spanish were never going to do. By October 1739, Britain had declared war on Spain in what would become known as the War of Jenkins' Ear. The War of Jenkins' Ear is an interesting event to note, as it took place entirely within the Americas. Unlike Queen Anne's War some 30 years before, this was not part of a larger campaign or the American colonies were only some small backwater theater of a greater conflict, but rather the American colonies were where the war would take place. In the North American British colonies, it probably will not surprise you that some 30 years after getting repelled from taking Florida, the British may still have their eyes on the peninsula. Indeed, from the moment that hostilities opened up, all eyes turned towards Florida. The British would have been more than happy to expel the Spanish from Florida. Well, the Spanish were now far removed from the height of their power. They were still a formidable force. Great Britain controlled the majority of the eastern coast of North America, running from Nova Scotia down through Georgia. Controlling Florida would have given the British control over the vast amount of the Atlantic coast. Eliminating the Spanish would have likewise relieved a major threat to both the Carolinas and Georgia, who were forced to constantly cast a nervous eye down towards their south. Recall that during Queen Anne's War, the Spanish had invaded South Carolina. Despite the Spanish being dealt a devastating defeat within the colony, nobody was terribly eager to have a repeat of that. This time, it was James Oglethorpe that was tapped to lead colonial forces on an invasion of Florida. As was the case three decades before, St. Augustine, the capital of Florida and really the population center of the colony, was the primary target that Oglethorpe was eyeing. By the end of the 1730s, Georgia was riddled with factionalism, that we talked about back in episode 3.14. Now, adding to his problems, Oglethorpe had a war thrust into his backyard. For Oglethorpe, the first objective was that he needed allies. For this, he turned towards two groups, chiefly the local Indian tribes and second, South Carolina. As to the former, Oglethorpe had a couple of key objectives. Not only did he want to win Indian allies over to his own camp, but importantly, he wanted to ensure that they did not choose to fight for the Spanish. The big aim early on for Oglethorpe was to get the alliance of the Creek people. For the Native Americans, the decision of whom to fight for was far more pragmatically driven than it was anything ideological. By this point in colonial relations, it was pretty clear to everybody that things seldom worked out for tribes that were on the wrong side of a loss. For Oglethorpe, the Creek people were an important check on the western flank of Georgia. Beyond that, had the Creek sided with Spain, any kind of offensive mission on St. Augustine would have been made nearly impossible. Oglethorpe was able to get the Creeks to align with him. 
Within days of the alliance being confirmed, the first offensive mission of the war came about. After a small group of Spanish killed two colonists in Georgia, Oglethorpe and the Creek launched a small but effective raid against Florida, moving towards St. Augustine. Oglethorpe got within 16 miles of the Florida capital before turning around and heading home, knowing that he had insufficient strength to actually do something big, like, for example, seizing St. Augustine. Oglethorpe was going to need more help in any kind of an attempt on St. Augustine itself. Doubtlessly looking at the failed attempt on the city during Queen Anne's War, Oglethorpe wanted to make sure that he had the numbers to move on the fort. South Carolina made a natural ally for Oglethorpe, at least on paper. Recall that during the invasion that occurred during Queen Anne's War, it was South Carolina leading the way. It was South Carolina that was invaded on the back end of that war, where the South Carolinians dealt the Spanish a devastating and humiliating loss. Finally, consider the much more recent history of South Carolina. Just six weeks before the outbreak of the war, South Carolina had to put down the Stono Rebellion. Back in episode 3.16, the slaves in that rebellion were seen marching towards St. Augustine, where the Spanish had promised freedom from any escaped slave who made it there. No doubt that the colonists were pretty upset and would have been very receptive to a military engagement with the Spanish. So, practically speaking, South Carolina is completely on board with this plan. Getting South Carolina to commit to sending men, however, proved to be a bit more of a challenge than Oglethorpe had predicted. The colonists there were absolutely busy licking their wounds from the Stono Rebellion, as well as dealing with the yellow fever outbreak that had moved through the colony at around the same time as the rebellion. Despite these difficulties, however, South Carolina did eventually pledge men to fight with Oglethorpe. With the fighting set to begin in the spring of 1740, Oglethorpe had a combined force made up of Georgia colonists, South Carolina colonists, a small navy provided by the British, and the Alliance of the Creek. Beginning in April 1740, the British Navy began with a blockade of the ports leading to St. Augustine. The British did not want a repeat of Queen Anne's War where everybody was sitting around, waiting to see if the Spanish would get aid first or if it would be the British. This time, Oglethorpe wanted to prevent that question entirely. All the effective waterways into St. Augustine were blocked by the British. With Oglethorpe's troops positioned along the St. John's River, he would make his first questionable decision of the war. Rather than just following the river, Oglethorpe chose to take a difficult secondary route that would have his men approaching from the north and block off the west side of the fortification. With the east side already blocked by the navy, this would give the British control over three of the four corners of St. Augustine. Well, that may sound great. A problem quickly arrived from the fact that the route was far more difficult, taking a heavy toll on both men, as well as a sizable chunk of time. The defense of St. Augustine fell to the Spanish governor of Florida, Manuel de Montiano. Montiano had a couple of key things going for him. The biggest advantage is that St. Augustine still possessed a formidable fortification in the Castillo de San Marcos. It was this fortification that we had discussed back during episode 3.11 that had provided the Spanish a place to hole up during the British attacks on the city. The fort was still there and was still relatively formidable. I do say relatively because upon his arrival in 1737, Montiano found the Castillo to be in pretty terrible shape. 
However, improvements had been made, and by the time 1740 rolled around, it had largely been improved. Likewise, unlike the situation in Queen Anne's War, Montiano was not dealing with a huge disparity in forces, having been reinforced from Cuba prior to the beginning of the blockade. We know that St. Augustine had around 2,000 total people, with around 750 of those being soldiers. Oglethorpe, by comparison, probably had around 1,000 men to fight. Supply lines did remain a fairly big issue, meaning that Montiano likely was going to want to avoid any kind of long-term siege from the British. Montiano knew that the British Navy was going to be a problem. If you look at the location of the Castillo, there is a large sandbar that protects the fort. For the colonists to directly assault the fort, they would need to travel through the St. Augustine Inlet and down the Matanzas River. The British had blocked access to the inlet, However, making it to the Matanzas River was going to be more challenging. Montiano sent out several shallow draft ships in order to block the entrances. These ships moved quickly in the shallow drafts and could easily retreat to the safety of shallow waters if need be. This worked very well for Montiano, as his smaller ships were advantageously enough positioned that they were able to prevent the British Navy from entering into the Matanzas River and thus denied the British that all-important bombardment on the eastern side of the fort. This was a complete catastrophe for Oglethorpe. Under his original plan, the forces inside the fort would have been split between the navy on the east and the ground troops on the west. By spreading the Spanish defenders thin, the hope was that Oglethorpe would meet minimum resistance when he invaded. Now, however, the plan was totally out the window. The east was safe and everybody inside of the Castillo could focus on the western side. Things just kept getting worse for Oglethorpe, when on his approach his men captured a smaller fort called Fort Mose, about two miles to the north of St. Augustine. While Oglethorpe's men were easily able to take the fort, they really tore the place up in the process. By the end of the skirmish, the fort had been heavily damaged and was no longer a secure place. Holes that had been blasted into the wall meant that anybody could literally stroll into the fort. Inexplicably, this is the place where many of Oglethorpe's men chose to make camp for several days. Recall just a moment ago when I said that you could just, you know, stroll into the fort? Well, this is not something that was lost on Montiano. He indeed sent a detachment and attacked the fort, killing and capturing at least 100 members of the combined British and Indian force. Clearly, at this point, nothing is going well for Oglethorpe, who is now left trying to figure out what his next move is going to be. With the original plan out, Oglethorpe divided his men, sending a handful to sweep around to the east of the fort. That detachment would be responsible for delivering the bombardment that the Navy was originally going to provide. This, of course, means that Oglethorpe's forces are spread more thinly than originally planned something that the attack on Fort Mose would only have exacerbated. With this in mind, Oglethorpe had abandoned the idea that he was going to be able to storm the fort and take it outright. He no longer had the firepower necessary for such an audacious raid. Rather, the plan was now to lay siege to the fort and blast the Spanish into surrender. On June 13th, the bombardment began. What followed was day after day of the British launching cannonballs at the Castillo. Unfortunately, this is about all that happened. Per Montiano, 
the British really did not cause that much in the way of catastrophic damage. The fort held and the people inside were forced to ride out a certainly unpleasant barrage. However, regardless of how unpleasant it may have been, the bombardment was not enough to get Montiano and the Spanish to surrender. One of the serious problems for Oglethorpe is that it is becoming clear right now that he really was not that much of a military guy. Yes, he had been in the army, and yes, he had fought in Queen Anne's War. However, that was about it. He was certainly no general. He found himself completely unable to come up with an alternative plan when the bombardment wasn't working. Now, to be clear, it's not like Montiano was some great military mind either. However, Montiano was at least sitting around in a fortified location, giving him the momentary advantage. This inflexibility by Oglethorpe meant that when it became obvious the bombardment alone would not do the job, the response was simply to keep going and hope that something would change. Meanwhile, as Oglethorpe and company kept pointlessly pounding away at the Castillo, the Florida summer began taking a toll on Oglethorpe's men. Illness spread throughout the camp as morale plummeted. Everybody could see that they were not getting anywhere. It was the British colonists, the ones who were conducting the siege that were now busy dying, rather than the besieged Spanish. The fatal blow for Oglethorpe's men came on June 23rd. On the 23rd, Spanish resupply ships from Cuba managed to sneak around the blockade and successfully resupply St. Augustine and the Castillo. It was all over for the British. The Castillo had been reprovisioned and could hold out for the foreseeable future. The British at the same time were becoming increasingly weak from the harsh conditions. Just had been the case some 30 years earlier, St. Augustine proved an elusive target. Florida would remain in Spanish hands. The aftermath of the British loss was predictable. South Carolina colonists pointed the finger at the inept leadership of Oglethorpe, while Georgia colonists pointed the finger right back at South Carolina. At the end of the day, the inescapable truth was that Oglethorpe was the commanding officer. This was his battle to bungle, and bungle it he did. Oglethorpe, as stated previously, was not some great military general. He had some experience, but really, it was nowhere near enough, and he had done much to prove that point in St. Augustine. The cause of the loss had really been twofold. Yes, Oglethorpe had failed to adapt to changing circumstances. When it had become clear the bombardment was futile, his plan was just to keep bombarding, regardless of the result. This would have been the time to think up something new and improve his chances. When the Spanish ships managed to sneak their way past the British blockade, the battle was over. Nothing that Oglethorpe could have done at that point could have salvaged the day. The fighting in this war was not only in Florida, but throughout the entire Caribbean. Well, I'm not planning on going far down this rabbit hole. I want to mention it because there are a couple of points here that are important to our story. The colonists in North America did not simply stay there. Rather, all throughout the colonies, people volunteered to go fight in Jamaica. So why would the colonists in North America have an interest in heading south to the Caribbean to fight the Spanish? At least partially, the answer was that they wanted to go have an adventure. But mostly, it was in hopes of gathering some spoils of war. Under the command of Admiral Edward Vernon during the fall of 1740, these Americans traveled along with Vernon on a planned mission against Cartagena. Arriving in Port Royal, Jamaica, this group consisted of some 3,600 provincial troops broken up into 36 companies. 
the Americans were under the direct command of Virginia Governor William Gooch. As an interesting aside, this is the first time that the term Americans appears in reference to the colonists. For those hoping for glory and riches, they were soon sorely disappointed. The first major problem is that they were little more than an afterthought in the greater army. Gooch and his men were poorly provisioned. Before ever leaving Port Royal for the attack on Cartagena itself, men were already beginning to get sick and die. To make matters worse, the provincial troops felt disrespected by the British regulars. The biggest complaint that the British officers had was that the American troops were painfully undisciplined. As a result, rather than being given major roles in the upcoming battle, the Americans were given menial duties, which often meant deck work. These men came out to fight and win glory and the spoils of war, and they were instead being subjected to carrying out petty cleaning and tasks, which they had little interest in doing. Ultimately, the attack on Cartagena would prove to be an absolutely disastrous loss. Despite the British outnumbering the Spanish, with some 25,000 British troops facing off against some 4,000 Spanish troops, everything that could go wrong did. Difficulties with the landing contributed to an offensive campaign that got bogged down and failed to progress forward with enough speed, which left the British dangerously exposed. And, well, some credit should be given to the Spanish here. The real victor of the day was the diseases that were absolutely ravaging the British. Even once Vernon concluded that capturing Cartagena would not happen, the dying continued. During the retreat, men continued to die at an absolutely alarming rate. At the end of the day, British losses were some 10,000 dead, compared to just about 800 Spanish. The failure of the attack on Cartagena would mark the end of the line for the colonists in the British army, as those who had been present were sent home following the loss. The numbers heading home at this point were just a small fraction of those who had initially set out on the mission. All hopes of riches and glory were gone, and replaced by a handful of new truths. The first thing to consider is how these men returning were viewed within the colony. Despite everything that had happened, they were hailed as heroes. They were seen as having gone off and bravely fought. The battle also did much to help stir the resentment of the American colonists towards the British military. There had long been a simmering tension between the two groups. However, the men who had served and went to Cartagena were not soon to forget their treatment and the fact that they were looked down upon by the military regulars. This is happening some 35 years before the Declaration of Independence. While these men were not likely to be the ones fighting against the British during the Revolution, they certainly were still alive. This distrust and resentment towards the British military is not something that is going to go away. As we are going to see, this rift is only going to grow from this point forward. As a final note on the matter, and one that admittedly falls pretty solidly under the trivia category, among those Americans who had traveled down to fight alongside Admiral Vernon was Lawrence Washington, the older half-brother of George Washington. As the eldest surviving son of Augustine Washington, it was Lawrence that would receive the large Virginia plantation following Augustine's death in 1743. Lawrence named the plantation for his commanding officer during his time fighting with the British in the war, Admiral Vernon. From that point forward, the Virginia plantation would become known as Mount Vernon. For the American colonists, the War of Jenkins' Ear had not really gone very smoothly. Those who had traveled to Jamaica to fight in the Caribbean had experienced both abuses and disrespect from the British officers and regulars alike. 
while suffering through devastating losses in Cartagena. Those who had fought in Florida fared little better and were themselves licking the wounds of a painful loss. Back in North America, however, fighting is still not done. As it turns out, everybody had enjoyed Queen Anne's War so much that the War of Jenkins' Ear was pretty much just a reboot. New actors, but the plot was all the same. So what exactly do I mean by that? Well, remember how in Queen Anne's War, how the Spanish were feeling pretty good about themselves and decided that invading South Carolina was just an awesome idea? Following their success in Florida and down in defending Cartagena, the Spanish were feeling pretty good with themselves. With Georgia so obviously weakened from the battle, Philip V of Spain decided that it would be nice to secure Florida and remove the threat posed by the Georgia and South Carolina colonies. Philip V decided to go for it and approved a mission to attack the southern British colonies. Command of this attack would fall into the hands of Montiano, fresh off his defense of St. Augustine. The plan was for Montiano to move quickly through a weakened Georgia before heading up and attacking South Carolina. Montiano would, playing off the recent Stono Rebellion, make promises of freedom to any slave that took up and fought for the Spanish. The goal was that South Carolina would be so badly destroyed by the invasion that the colonists in Georgia would have to merge with South Carolina, essentially forcing them to abandon Georgia altogether. To accomplish this, Montiano would assemble a navy in St. Augustine and plan to sail right up the coast. Oglethorpe, positioned on the St. Simon's Island, was not to be surprised, however, after a British vessel saw Spanish ships sailing towards St. Augustine. This gave Oglethorpe much-needed time to warn both Georgia and South Carolina of a potential impending attack. Oglethorpe became aware of the potential attack sometime around the early part of June 1742. It was not until June 20th that weather allowed for the fleet to set sail from St. Augustine. Once again, it was the weather that would play a major role after a storm rolled through and scattered the Spanish fleet. Rather than waste any more time reassembling the fleet, Montiano plunged ahead and kept moving towards Georgia. The goal for Montiano had been St. Simon's Island, an island located some 80 miles to the south of Savannah. This island marked a critical location for the defense of Georgia and marked the location where Oglethorpe and his men were stationed. Despite some delays, Montiano was able to capture the island fairly easily, landing down in the south. Despite the landing, though, he was not able to trap Oglethorpe nor his men on the island. Oglethorpe, realizing that he would not hold the position, retreated north to Frederica. Overall, however, things were off to a pretty decent start for Montiano. On July 7th, Montiano sent a reconnaissance mission out to Frederica. The party, however, was quickly discovered by Oglethorpe's men and was repulsed. While Montiano knew where the British were, he himself was now facing a serious problem. Chiefly, there was only a single road leading from St. Simons to Frederica. Making matters more complicated, this was not exactly a place where you could easily travel off the main roads. The area was heavily forested and marshy. Now it was Oglethorpe's turn to hold the defensive position, while Montiano had to figure out just what he could do. As it turned out, that reconnaissance party was just a small part of a much larger Spanish force moving towards Frederica. The British colonists gave chase to the retreating Spanish forces from the earlier reconnaissance party. It was during this pursuit that the large Spanish force was discovered. The British defenders quickly took over and then promptly ambushed the Spanish. 
Shocked by the ambush, the men quickly moved to push the Spanish off the main road and into the adjoining swamplands. From there, the Georgian forces were able to roundly defeat the Spanish force. This loss forced the Spanish to retreat all the way back to the southern tip of St. Simons and settle into a defensive posture. With the overland route over that single row no longer being a feasible route, Montiano decided that the best bet was to move his army via the ocean further north, along a waterway that ran to the west of the island. This, however, fared little better. As soon as the ships were in range of Oglethorpe's men at Frederica, they opened fire and drove the Spanish back towards St. Simon's. Having been driven back twice now, and concerned about reinforcements arriving from Savannah and South Carolina, it was now Montiano's turn to pack up and head home to lick his wounds. Despite Oglethorpe's pleas for help as soon as he had learned about the planned invasion, reinforcements did not actually arrive to help him until two weeks after Montiano had withdrawn. Oglethorpe and his Indian allies would carry out a campaign of harassment against the Spanish, though little would come of it. There was never another coordinated offensive attack against the Spanish, nor any attempt to capture St. Augustine. The Spanish settled back into defensive positions at St. Augustine, and that is roughly where things would remain for the foreseeable future. As had been the case during Queen Anne's War, the War of Jenkins' Ear had done little to change the situation in North America. In both conflicts, the Spanish repulsed attempts to capture St. Augustine, before then launching their own failed expeditions against South Carolina and Georgia. In the South, the war ends following the failed attempt by Montiano in Georgia. Despite a few ongoing skirmishes and harassment by Oglethorpe, the war in North America was over and was a stalemate. The War of Jenkins' Ear would never really have its own conclusion. Following the loss in Cartagena, Walpole's government would collapse. Then, in 1744, questions over Austrian succession would launch all of Europe into a war aptly named the War of Austrian Succession. At the beginning of our episode today, we had discussed the fact that the British aggressions towards Spain was largely seen as a way to strike out against Spain's ally, France. However, now with the War of Austrian Succession underway, Britain found themselves thrust into a war with the French themselves. Next time, we are going to continue to watch the rebooted version of Queen Anne's War. With the Southern Theater settled and Britain now at war with France, it is time to look at the other favorite target of the British in North America. When we return in two weeks' time, we will be discussing the British plans to once again attempt an invasion of Canada. Until then, I hope you all have a fantastic two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we watch the British once again invade Canada. <laughs>